This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Attendance-driven plotting. Recent food staples. Mid-teens SF films. And Jeff the Mongoose. you doing? I'm getting into character to play the new Plain Gia 5e campaign setting. It's about dinosaurs! Well, technically it's a prehistoric fantasy campaign setting, so not just about dinosaurs, but dinosaurs! I don't think you actually play as a dinosaur, but there are a ton of new kinships, subclasses, monsters, factions. I guess it is possible. I'll just check through this massive 380-page Plain Gia setting book and see. Well, okay... Oh, wow, you totally can play as a dinosaur. Playing Gia is a prehistoric fantasy setting for 5e. It's a place of utter wildness where survival is the only law and must be carved from the world by a force of might and magic. Play a saurian with ancestral memories. Pick from a leather wing, hammer tail, sharp fang, or web foot. Indeed, rawr. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe in Playing Gia for 5e. Nothing is as you expect in Playing Gia. Elves are shimmering dreamwalkers. Dwarves are half stone. Humans are beast tamers. Halflings are silent stalkers. Gnomes are filthy scavengers. And dragonborn are just a heartbeat away from their draconic ancestors. The campaign setting book, as well as accessories like the GM screen, adventure soundtrack, and deluxe boxed edition, are all available now from Atlas Games. For more, use your tiny flailing arms to type in atlas-games.com slash Plain Gia. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. And here at the gaming... Oh, it looks like we have some extra Doritos because Glenn couldn't show up. (laughs) Um, And, And also we have extra Doritos because if you're noticing an unusual sound environment... This is, for the first time in many years, the episode that we record while we're in Indianapolis waiting for uh, Gen Con to start. So uh, this time around, instead of in a hotel room with a noisy air conditioning and a loud fridge, we're in an Airbnb with noisy air conditioning and a loud fridge, and perhaps even children frolicking in a gazebo outside. It so. could happen, and uh, we don't need to tell you, gamers of long standing, what can happen if children are allowed to frolic. In a gazebo. Right. But back to the actual topic of the segment the that, premise. We were, that we were getting around to. Yeah, I thought we'd talk a bit about not just how to deal with a very unpredictable mix of players attendance-wise, which, spoiler alert, is what I have currently. We're back finally playing in person, but I've got a busy crowd. And uh, I don't know about your group, but even now, in 2023, in the... I don't know whether they're in the post-unpleasantness, the late unpleasantness, but at any rate, people's lives are still a little unpredictable, Ken. They were unpredictable. In fairness, let's not put all of this down to Chinese bacteriological research. People's lives were unpredictable (laughs) well before March of 2020. Right. And so the... Just fairness for Xi Jinping. That's all we ask for in this podcast. 
So you can tell we're punchy. However, uh, designing something for a group where you don't know how many people are going to show up. First of all, tip number one, have way more people than quorum if you've got uh, people who are dropping in and out. And second of all, I want to talk about how you can use that to your advantage to have a game where it's like, I'm not predicting ahead of time where this is going to go because where it uh, is directed is essentially maintained in large degree by player attendance. Who shows up that week matters in what it is it that you're doing and what the plot hooks are and how to achieve that. So, for example, the game that I'm running right now is a Golden Age DC comics series. It's not chiefly designed just to deal with attendance issues, but it does that well. It's chiefly designed to have something light and kind of silly to get back mm-hmm. into the groove yeah. for the first time. But also, it's very convenient and shows a way that you can do stuff even when you're not playing established characters in that I find out many days in advance who's supposedly coming, hours in advance who's actually, actually coming, coming, and then only then do I get to, can I decide what it is we're doing tonight. So if Wonder Woman, who is a, a recurring character, not a regular, shows up, okay, we're going to do Wonder Woman's origin story and guess what? All of a sudden, to the extent that there's any kind of continuity behind this game, suddenly Ares and the Greek gods are part of the deal, as of course is Wonder Woman's kangaroo jumpy, but that's a different story, that other members of the uh, Justice Society are eventually uh, going to have to uh, possibly deal with. So the direction of the campaign is determined by who shows up. And this is easy in this instance because tailoring adventures to well-known existing characters is a matter of, okay, well, Wonder Woman. What would they do? It's an Ares one. We Uh do our origin story. Steve Trevor washes up and Ares shows up. Or our man's turn to be in the spotlight. Well, we're going to have the hook related to his famous DC setting of Appleton City and Golden Age, our man's way of finding what cases to tackle is he has a classified ad. You can write in and ask our man to solve your problems. If only, if only. Red Vern. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that works fairly well with, first of all, with things that happen in sort of short, sharp episodes. Yes, you have to do it that way. So it's much harder to do this model, even if you're still playing supers, if you're in a game where, for example, you're trying to do a longer connected arc, like they've gone to Earth 2, and all of a sudden, Wonder Woman was with you when you went to Earth 2, but now you're on Earth 2, and... She's not there. Right. So, And that's a level of hand waving. You can kind of deal with that by just having the hand waving. They're there mm-hmm. and they're not. Uh, and you can do that in any series. But about having it be directed around the characters, that's mm-hmm. a big thing. You can't have an arc that you need a particular right. character to show up for. Uh, yeah, if you're counting on this is going to be the big you know, confrontation between this character and their vampire uncle, if they're not there, you have to sort of tap dance and stall and sometimes you're tap dancing and stalling an awful long time waiting for that person to get their life back together or show up when they say they're going to be there. Because many people, best will in the world, can't quite nail down once a week as a concept in their lives. Right. And so this solution of have them be well-known characters who all have disparate enemies and MOs and so forth, that question solved itself. But if you are going to have that approach where the players are playing characters that they've invented or even, you know, less well-known characters, I guess. The trick then is to make sure that everybody has a really strong plot hook or 
worldview or whatever it is that you can drop a plot in at zero moments notice. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, a good tip, whether you have good attendance or not, because having everybody have a strong enough hook that you can create a scenario around them with minimal prep. That's pretty much best practices. That's best practices. Yeah. So how would you go about that? Let's say, you know, if you're going to start up an unknown armies campaign next week, how would you ensure that your players had enough of that for you in order to do something where it's all little short things and they don't have a continuity run and you don't know who's showing up. I mean, with something like unknown armies, it's, it's really easy because it's a very base reflexive sort of question. It's what do you, what do you want so much that you'll engage in this horrible magic to get it? And what do you fear? Right. And so if you have a, a desperate want and a desperate fear, you have two story hooks for each player character. And you should probably have that for a, for any kind of, of, right. of darknessy game, whether it's, you know, unknown armies or a vampire or any of those games, right. you should be <laughs> able to drive players with the goad or with the temptation. Right. And most contemporary games will already have a mechanism to do this for to, you. To ask that. Um, yeah. And play. the ones that, so what can we think of that, that doesn't do that, that needs to do that? I guess F20. Yeah. F20 right? is the, is the real, Standout of having long adventures that sometimes turn on people who aren't there or that tactically are going to turn because you're, you know, you balanced this encounter, you know, weeks ago for five players, all one of whom is going to be casting all their fireballs. And, you know, suddenly the wizard isn't there because he needed to, you know, take care of his sick kid or whatever. 13th Age addresses that with the relationships to the icons. And, uh, you know, you literally are supposed to throw in a new plot hook, but it's always kind of a side hook to what you're already planning right. to do. Yeah. And so is it a matter of having an encounter in your head, or I guess with F20 uh, stat blocked out in right, some yeah. detail for each of the major player characters? And you go, well, okay, I have a fireball encounter and I'm going to wait until the wizard shows up to run the fireball encounter. I have something where you, you know, you bore the halflings in the tavern with your song. And of course, you know, okay, well, the thing for the bard to do is that actually sort of a fun and like, this could maybe be a book, right? Is have a book of encounters geared to all the major character classes. So and and, pull them um, and then it has a, have a section on how to pull off a Schrodinger's dungeon. Yeah. Where instead of a pre-planned layout that, and the downside is you sacrifice intelligibility because it's harder uh, if you're building a dungeon to sort of tell a story or to reveal a truth about the game world, it's harder to do that if you have to be able to say, oh, behind that door was actually the easily bored uh, drow, not particularly fireball-proof, you know, ogre mage right. or whatever. But if there's anything that's already built to be modular and, and yeah. you know, in which intelligibility is not mm, the right, default, yeah. it's F20. Yeah, it's just that you do wind up losing something. And, and of course, the game that, you know, solved this problem eons ago is Ards Magica with troop-style play. It's like, oh, you can't be there, then someone else plays their wizard, and you play secondary characters, and they would have been a grog, and you just took a grog, and no one has a problem playing right. that. But beyond that, you also need a plot hook for the people. Right. A separate plot hook for each of the people but it's But it's up. easier to do if your assumption is we're splitting the party in the sense yeah. of the most important character is always going to be with a bunch of sidekicks and, and meat shields. Right. Because then, you know, who the most important character is really can rotate by who shows up. And right. it's very easy to do that. And the assumption is, oh, well, the reason we're not back on the bottom of the ravine with the ice mage 
is because, well, on the one hand, Cynthia wasn't there, but on the other hand is because we're expecting that we're going to be cutting to the guy who wants to go and saw up giants and take their pituitary glands and do magic with that. And that's just, you know, the way the story works. And everyone sort of buys into that sort of King Arthur-y, meanwhile, on the other side of the magic forest, blah, blah. Right, because uh, there's lots of things that we're modeling that do not have the lengthy intertwined continuity assumptions that we have from modern serialized uh, entertainment. And mm-hmm. So I guess ultimately from just sort of the technical how-do-you-do-it point of view, whatever the game, the answer is to have either in your head mm-hmm. or on paper what plot hook you're going to run the next time each player is in the spotlight. Mm-hmm. And then you you decide you know who's going to be the focus person out of the pool of people who show up and then possibly pick a B plot. And the players will also then do much of the rest of the work of finding ways if you know there it's not their plot this week, but they did show up, but they'll find a way yeah. to make it their plot and to have cool things happen. And and the the rest of it is just in the middle of the session is, you know, if you notice that the person who, you know, you didn't build the story around hasn't had anything to do, uh, that's when you know, their a little hint of their plot line comes crashing through the door with a gun. Which is basically what you will do you know, regardless, even if you had players with perfect attendance, you'd be doing this for, you know, to change up whose story you're following at any given minute right. so that you have this sense of an ongoing rippling uh, narrative where, you know, because you're playing a group activity, you have people rotating through whose story is most important. Right. And I think the difference with a, a, a group of solid attendance is just that you can plan more on a long range basis of who gets the spotlight. And, and you can depend on, you know, Two characters being in the same room doing the same sort of thing at once, which is not always, you know, a a solid guess with some other groups. Well, on that note, I think we have covered this question and can move on to the next exciting segment on the other side of this exciting commercial. After a serpentine journey, the long-awaited scenario supplement for Cthulhu Confidential has shed its final skin to achieve full print form. Yes, Even Death Can Die is now a book filled with terror for one player and one GM. Featuring three scenarios apiece, starring the core book's iconic investigators. Chris Bivey's scholarly World War II vet Langston Wright takes on corrupt businessmen and Nazi spies in One for the Money. Struggles to expel an extraterrestrial passenger from his body in The Shadow Over Washington. And tangles with a traveling fire and brimstone evangelist in Preacher Man Blues. Ruth Tillman's straight-talking New York investigative journalist Vivian Sinclair tackles murder from a distance in The Howling fog goes deep underground as a strike roils a water tunnel project and deeper things stir further below in Axistoria and finds the creepy and crawly behind a gambling ship benefit gala in boundary waters and my LA hardboiled detective Dex Raymond looks into a wave of rat attacks and a child's disappearance leading to the house up in the hills takes on a case for a legendary movie prop designer when Frankenstein's lab gear goes missing in high voltage kill and finds something terrible under a bed at the Revelstock Hotel in Skin and Teeth. Can you solve these cases with your hide and mind intact? Find out in Even Death Can Die, now available from your superior local game store or at the Pelgrane Press web store.
Well, things are bubbling, they're cooking, they smell great, we've got lots of ingredients all over the counter, and that's because, as is often our want in these more relaxed pre-Gen Con episodes, we're going to talk about food again in the food hut. Woo! And uh, this time I thought I would give us each just sort of a, a series of free throws, because Ken has already explained blueberries at length, we can't do that again, and just talk can about... we? <laughs> Okay, uh, we oughtn't. Yeah, that's I, fair. I know you certainly can. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I thought we'd just talk about some recent things that we've been, uh, each of us, playing with in the kitchen. Spoiler, we're not going to uh, mention any new ingredients that we have developed for ourselves. And certainly not, in my case, any new techniques. But just things that, in my case, a few things that I should have been doing years ago, but that I've been doing a lot uh, lately, but uh, can I'm the one introducing it, so I get to ask you uh, for the first thing you're going to mention that's a relatively new item on your grocery list, in your home bar, or uh, on your list of uh, techniques. Well, this is something that is not so much new as something that I had disdained. I'm not a big fennel guy. I'm not a fan of the of the anise or the licorice-flavored foods anyway. And I had always figured, well, fennel's what you put in if you want something that tastes licorice I never do. Problem solved. Recently, I made a uh, ragu bianca because we had leftover roast suckling pig to get rid of. A problem that I wish on all my friends <laughs> oh, and all oh, you listeners. Poor guy, man. And so the ragu bianca is basically you build the sofrito with onion, celery, and fennel, and the fennel becomes the thing instead of carrot or become instead of pepper, the thing in the in, in the holy trinity there. And when you chop the fennel up and you fry it up in the oil and you slow cook it with the pork, it stops tasting harsh and becomes this sort of wonderful, almost herbaceous flavor component. And, you know, big second look at fennel because once you, you know, punish it, it starts to behave and it no longer tastes like you've, you know, bitten into the, you know, the rind of a, of an anise star. Yeah, I think basically with fennel, anything, if it's still crispy, it's it's probably a little too uh, strong and licorice mm-hmm. But even if you just grill it for a long time, its flavor changes quite a bit. So if your your fennel is soft, I don't know, something rhymes with that. So I guess uh, while we're talking about roasting vegetables, I've discovered a number of vegetables that I previously thought of as, oh, this is something that you just have raw. I've discovered that they're great roasted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and An so, ongoing revelation. Really. Uh, yeah. And my gateway drug for this is the endive, uh, which I, you know, had always thought of as a salad ingredient or right, what yeah. have you. But it turns out if you drizzle it in oil and roast it at a high temperature for about 15 minutes and until it starts to turn sort of blackened on the edges and all translucent throughout, again, its flavor completely changes. In this case, it's not that it becomes less harsh, but it becomes richer and they're really fabulous and it's also a vegetable that may last in your crisper a little longer if mm-hmm. you're not going to market every day. And so it's a great to have on hand. And it's versatile because you can also use it uh, for those other things. And so that took me on another journey of starting to wonder, well, what else can I roast that is going to have a surprising result? And often if you look at the things that you've been told to grill mm-hmm. and you kind of went, well, this was sort of a thing on the grill. If you roast them, it becomes a whole other third thing that is really great. So radishes, for example, mm. cut them up, not super thin, but, you know, into right. slices 
and put them in a pan, uh, in a roast pan with butter or olive oil and some herbs, some dried herbs that will, you know, stand up to the yeah, your standard vegetable roasting protocol. Yeah. They taste really great and different than if you uh, grill them. Yeah. And radishes, unlike fennel, are actually good already. So imagine what happens if you unlock yes. their secret powers. But they're totally different raw, uh, right, yeah. much sharper and mm-hmm. spicier. Uh, and yeah. roasting mellows at anything. And it yeah, right. Mellow, absolutely. It'll it's mellow to radish. Like if you imagine roasting garlic, you have that same sort of uh, key change that runs through whatever you're roasting. Yeah. So uh, from an ingredient, I'll discuss a technique. I recently got back from Wisconsin. I stopped off at a cheese place, brought some cheese. And during last winter, I kind of paid attention, and this was really just something that I, I lifted from Kenji Lopez-Alt's, you know, uh, website, Serious Eats, but the way to make a grilled cheese sandwich, and the way to make it is ridiculously clever. You take your bread, you put your butter into the hot pan, you put the bread down on one side in the butter, once it's grilled on one side, you take it out and you make that the inside of the sandwich. So the inside is already grilled. Then you put the cheese and whatever other ingredients, your ham or your bacon or your whatever else you're grilling, tomato, in between the cheese, you put it together and then you add the butter back and you grill it on either side, grill and then flip the whole sandwich. So by the end of the day, you have two pieces of bread, each buttered and grilled on both sides. And on the one hand, it just becomes unimaginably buttery. So if you don't want a lot of butter, well, first, why are you having a grilled cheese? But second of all, <laughs> know that this will make it a much butterier sandwich, but it also solves the problem of heat transfer and the cheese screwing up. And it just technically makes the sandwich work better as a sandwich. And I would argue also as a wonderful artery clogging meal, which is the whole point of a grilled cheese sandwich. So that's just a very simple, dumb technique that it took me umpty ump years to figure out how to do. And I did it by cheating and going on the internet. But in, in this, in a lot of ways, Robin, people are going on the internet right now. Exactly. Well, I also have uh, something that is so easy that has transformed my cooking so much this summer uh, that I've been doing a little last couple of years and I've really started doing more. And it is just simply the revelation that if you're cooking on an outdoor grill, you can take metal pans uh, which undoubtedly you already have mm-hmm. that can withstand the extreme heat of a grill. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can put vegetables in those pans and you get a completely different result than if you just cook the same vegetable lying on the grill. So mm-hmm. the, the on dive trick that I talked about in the, in the oven, you can do that on the grill too. Right. And just put your cast iron on the grill and problem solved. Yeah. And the radish is the same or also, uh, mushrooms. I, you know, have always just put mushrooms directly on the grill and they sort of dry out and they got this little crispy thing. Or maybe well, they fall in between the grills and you feel angry. Yes. And, and, but again, what if, you take those very same mushrooms and cut them up and put uh, garlic powder and uh, that enables you to put uh, some butter or in my case, basil on them and spices. And they, Oh, guess what? I can now have super juicy mushrooms that are still different than Mm -hmm. if I cook them any other way inside, including in a roast pan, but it's a, a new whole different thing. So that's just a case of taking, you know, my just assumption of, well, it's a grill. Things got to go in the grill. Well, they don't. You can put them in a pan, and it's all. And that opens up a whole lot of. And pans go in the grill. The pans go in the grill. And then that just really solves the problem of you know things that would otherwise fall through a grill. You can yeah. do it with corn. You can do it with all kinds of things that you literally can't grill. I'm not talking about ears of corn. I'm talking about loose corn. Yeah. 
but you know, grilled delicious corn is amazing. I recently did like an edamame and uh, tomato and uh, an onion thing, and it was great. So tasty. Yeah. My newest thing, and this is literally my newest, in that I discovered it online a little while ago, and it's a kind of ramen. And it's a kind of ramen that is big in Indonesia, and it's called mi goreng. And there are packets that you can buy from a company called Indomie that is the biggest ramen company in Indonesia. And in Indo- Indonesia, this is street food, and the people who make mi goreng use ramen packets as the noodles. So it's these ramen packets, and it's cooked in sort of a combination of this thick, sweet soy sauce called ketchup manis, not no relation to ketchup and oyster sauce, and then you put usually spring onions or, or dried onions or some kind of onion thing in there, and a little hot sauce, a little sambal wellic, if you, uh, you know, d- depending on your own temperature tolerance, and you cook the noodles in that, and then instead of making ramen noodles where you're having a soup, you're just making stir-fried noodles, basically. And that flavor combination... Uh, I've only had it right now from the packets, the Indomie packets that you can get. Right. And, and they're fun because they come with the different little, the little sachets in little sweet them and then exactly. you put them in the, uh, you know, you get to in mix the them up. And, it, and it's huge fun. And I have, you know, proof of concept. I enjoyed a delicious migoreng like yesterday. And when I get back and have some time, I'm going to source that cool Indonesian soy sauce and I'm going to build it from scratch and see just how. Uh, much more work I can go to to make something that tastes almost as good as a packet from Indonesia. So I'm really looking forward to exploring Migoreng. It tastes unlike everything else that you've had, but in a in a really fun, familiar, exciting way that uh, if you like East Asian food in general, I think it's going to be right in your space. You know, it's got a little bit of a Korean uh, pop to it, and a little bit of a, a Philippine uh, acidity to it, and a little bit of uh, Vietnamese deep flavor to it, and it's all blended up there, and it's really good. Well, for my last item, I'm going to talk about some uh, new uh, alcohols that I've added to my bar, some mm. spirits. And so... Love uh, a spirit. Yes. So one thing that is definitely not something I invented and something I'm super late to the game on is Calvados, right. which I've certainly had before, but as a cocktail ingredient, had, it's not, amazing. had not really considered, but it's mm. extremely versatile in that it's lovely just straight. Or you can mix it with all sorts of things. It has a sort of a medium level sweetness. So you can add, uh, I like a sweet cocktail. So I'm going to want to add more sweetener to it than that. And like a lot of other great spirits, it pairs well with almost anything, which is, you know, once you get past your, your staples, your, your vodka, your bourbon, your rye, your gin and so forth. Uh, there aren't a lot of spirits that will that are as versatile as as Calvados. and I am told that it, you also make a delightful cake with it. But uh, the uh, LCBO, the Liquor Control Board of Ontario, the government-run retail, apparently they have a policy where when you buy a new spirit, they somehow make sure that there's someone from that culture to sell it to you. And oh, nice! So a nice French lady told me I need to make the Calvados cake, and I haven't gotten around to that. I may need to buy another bottle of Calvados. Oh no! It's the worst. The next one is Chinar or Sinar, as mm-hmm. I I tried to get the pronunciation of it, and the American pronunciation is the one where I asked for it, and the guy in the liquor store in Little Italy didn't know what I was talking about. You know, oh, Chinar. Oh, Chinar. Uh, this is an Italian aperitif. 
I don't necessarily love the world of Italian aperitifs because um, because that many of them are in the in the dark land of Negroni from once no travel yes, returns. They're they're bitter and weird, and yeah. uh, you know I have enough bitter and weird in my life. Yeah, okay, that's literally you know all day every day, right? But chinar, which is an of all things an artichoke liqueur, um, madness is actually also another magical binding ingredient in other cocktails where you mix it with another primary spirit and you can put chinar in almost any cocktail idea you're sort of messing with and it becomes interesting and cool and it has a depth and again i'm going to want to especially something with like this which is a little bitter i'm going to want to really sweeten that up but Mm -hmm. when you're trying to come up with a new cocktail put some chinar and the other things you're thinking about and see if that works yeah if if you're looking i guess for something bitter but you don't want to do straight bitters then this is the thing and and it doesn't once you pair it with something and sweeten it a little, it's not like, oh, it's a bitter thing that it I'm tricking into being take good. the place over like Campari does. Yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, and then finally, I f- the LCBO is great, especially if you're a wine person. The level of wine buying power that they have mm-hmm. and the, how many years that they buy things mean that you can get an incredible range of things and incredible bargains ahead of time. But Weirdo Spirits is not so good because it makes it hard to source certain things. And they finally got in stock something I've wanted to try for years since I read the original history of the cocktail, which is a variant kind of gin, Old Tom gin. Um, and yes, Old Tom is, is is nuts and amazing and great fun. Yes, and uh, it lacks the sort of uh, you know super piney botanical flavor of gin because gin is tricky it's hard to pair with other things mm, yeah. this is not tricky it will pair with just about anything yeah. but it's not a plymouth dry i mean you'd be thinking oh it's just a dry gin no it's it's a sweet it's got sort of a almost a cottony mouthfeel sometimes it's uh it's really its own kind of beverage and it's amazing i don't know that it's something that i would you know demand to keep on hand forever but it's certainly a great deal of fun if you get a bottle yeah, and it's probably easier, easier in other jurisdictions. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Heyman's Old Tom, it's a relatively big concern. But it, it's part of the cocktail revolution that this is coming back. And I guess the next thing on my list is to try something that's like one of the original Dutch gins, which I understand yeah, the is... the Genevers. Yeah, the Genevers, yeah. which I understand is a whole other thing and unrelated to other gins, pretty much. Yeah, you have to really be fond of juniper, in my experience. Oh, it's on the juniper it's, side? It's got... Never I, mind. The Genevers that I have had Dutch have gin. been... More junipery than not. Okay. Let's just say that. But I might have had a weird bunch. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, our, our Dutch listeners are like, no, there are many kinds of Jennifer. Yes. You haven't had blah, blah. Yeah, well, get us the waffle kind. Yeah, get us the, the friendly palate one, not the one that sails up the Thames and burns the British Navy. Right. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> well, once we're issuing uh, demands of uh, our Dutch friends, it's time for us to uh, move on to another segment. The best 
of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Keep this podcast's endives crisp and fresh by joining such erudite Patreon backers as... Eric R. Brian Malcolm. Phil Groff. Liz and Siski. And Terry Robinson. We've definitely bought the tickets online, but we might not have selected the seats. <laughs> this is in the Halcyon era, just before seat selection. Just before seat selection. So we still have to show up on time, or a little ahead of time to the Cinema Hut, but we can still, if we're smart and wise, get that center seat, center aisle, settle down with our popcorn, wait for the digital projector to begin, mm -hmm. because we are definitely almost in what I think we would recognize as now. Now. Even though yes. it's actually umpty ump well, a decade know, ago. You know my current definition of now? What's that? What's this podcast in production? <laughs> right. And yes, yes we've did we listen to Ken and Robin on our way to the cinema hut? Yes. If have, so, then it's now. Have we mentioned some of these, almost all of these films previously because they were in our top tens? Uh, most most likely. Yeah. Yes. So, yes, we're in the present day, but it's not the present day anymore. It's still the past because mm -hmm. it's the Obama era. So, second term Obama. Second term the Obama. The richest, most uh, aromatic Obama. Yeah. Bin Laden is dead. So, the global yep. war on terror themes have suddenly gone out the window. And we are also entering, in terms of pop culture, the riff interregnum. So we're getting to the point, which is definitely part of the present day, that franchises never die and they ever even go fallow for very long. And, and we're not going to talk about a lot of franchise films. No, very few. Very few. It's really going to you're going to have to do something with different your franchise film for us to mention it, but it's now dominant. And so there's a lot of riffing and callbacks and fan service and people who are you know, third generation fans are making the movies. And even these films, if there is a theme to them, it is just that they are made by people who know the genre, know the history of the genre. And with maybe one or two little exceptions, these are all to one degree or another takes on existing things. Yeah. And the things that make them essential is just that they're really well executed. In, in many ways, this is the era when science fiction finally does what horror was doing in the 80s, which is sort of look back on the whole field and say, oh, I want to make me one of those. Right. And so uh, we're going to start with one that I didn't see because I don't always love survival films. So you're going to talk about Gravity, directed by Alfonso Cuaron. I love, I love, I love a hard science fiction movie, which is to say one that's not playing around. Momentum exists. Inertia exists. We are dealing with the cold equations of physics that I thrilled to that when I was 11. I still thrill to it. This is uh, Sandra Bullock is an astronaut and something goes wrong on the space station meteor shower and she's floating alone in space. And her only human connection is George Clooney, who's also an astronaut on the other end of the sort of the wire. And they have to sort of figure out, is there a way to save Sandra Bullock? And, you know, that's the story. It's just 
two smart, trained people who happen to be played by beloved movie stars trying to solve a physics problem with Alfonso Cuaron hitting every part of his sort of black and white, bleak, almost pitiless, quasi-Kubrickian eye. The humanity comes entirely from the performances. None of it comes from the script or the camera work. It's uh, it's a real deal, and uh, it's just a it's a it's an essential for astronauts in peril. And later, when you see his autobiographical movie Roma, it shows him as a kid going to the cinema to see Marooned, mm-hmm. a, a previous Lost in Space movie. Next, we're going to come to Interstellar. Uh, Christopher Nolan appears on the list yet again. And speaking of riffing, this is to a large extent his reckoning with Kubrick. I think anybody yeah. who's going to make a second science fiction film mm-hmm. or perhaps a whole bunch of them has to do their Kubrick one. And this is that. And, and of course it is a tricky puzzle and a, therefore sort of a metaphysical questioning. And the main way it departs from Kubrick is that it is a film that has a sense of emotional yearning and it's about a family. And it is also about being marooned. And also like a lot of Nolan films, it's hard to describe the plot. So describe the plot, Ken. Yeah. Uh, very simply, Matthew McConaughey is sent out into space on one last mission because there's a wormhole that can put you through space to another planet, and Earth is ecologically broken and dying, and we need to get some part of humanity to a new world or else we're all going to go extinct. He was a former astronaut, and he's called back for one last mission. He's uh, teamed up on this mission with Anne Hathaway, so obviously love is in the air, and also he's got a you know a son who hates him for being, you know, going away and leaving the family and and deserting the farm. So there's, you know, family drama. It being Nolan, we're playing with time. We're specifically playing with relativity. Once more, my hard SF loving self enjoys the messing around with uh, relativity and lapsed time and the, the tau effect. We're, you know, playing with gravity, zooming around the gravitational horizon of a black hole. And because it's Nolan, the film is also playing with time, with, with, you know, what's happening when... Where is cause? Where is effect? And unlike many Nolan films, it is also a PN to love. Familial love and romantic love both drive the story in ways that does not happen an awful lot for Christopher Nolan. And it is, you know, combines this. I don't give it the, you know, gravity level of hard SF, but it's harder SF than many. And he, he lures you with these amazingly cool, pitiless Nolan set pieces, but he's sneakily being a big old softy romantic in the story. And of course, once you see that happening and unfolding, you know, like a puzzle box on the film, it catches you up and, you know, you buy the whole bit. Next, we come to one that we've definitely talked about before. It's to the extent that I know I, I love it and you kind of like it, which is Under the Skin by Jonathan Glazer uh, from 2014. This has Scarlett Johansson as an alien from another world. It's sort of a, a body snatcher a metamorphosis. Uh, she's sort of a combination of Invasion of the Body Snatchers and E.T. trying to get home. Mm -hmm. But it's done in a completely sort of imagistic, although it's based on a a more conventional, I think, science fiction novel, but it drops all of the plot out to just sort of be a strange, experiential, moody, imagistic film that is as resonant in its sound design as its Mm -hmm. imagery. Johansson does a really great performance, but it's not a conventional performance because there's not emoting and dialogue and all that right stuff. she's it's playing really- a pitiless alien sort of investigator slash monster yeah and so definitely a, a film of the riff era and then it's combining a whole lot of other things but it's also doing it in a really unexpected uh sort of way that i think uh, 
distinguishes it even from a lot of other films. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that it is massively creative, does things with film that not a lot of things have ever done. The vibe is much more of a horror film, even though it is a science fiction film, because it's, you know, first contact just with a mean alien. And that, of course, is rock solid part of the genre. Right. But also sort of from the alien's point, point of, of view. view. Yeah. And you're sort of like rooting for the alien to, you know, eat the people. Especially the yeah, I mean, it, it does help that the people that Scarlett Johansson is preying on are kind of jerks. So, I mean, good for you, alien, I guess. You know, I, I think that, Robin, you embraced the aesthetic maybe a little more than I did. And I was sort of, you know, on my back legs a couple of times going, <laughs> but it's, you know, you won't forget it. You know, if you've watched Under the Skin, none of that is leaving you. That's staying yeah. in your hindbrain forever. Our next film, uh, speaking of dangerous female protagonist, question marks, is Ex Machina by Alex Garland. And this is a straight up Frankenstein. This is... Oscar Isaac is trying to build a self-aware robot and it's Alicia Vikander and he's messing, he's training it basically on right. an unbeknownst, you know, a, a gormless employee of his tech company. Right. And it's a, a Frankenstein that speaks of what will, what was then perfectly well known, but will later be known as the Me Too movement. And mm-hmm. if you uh, want to create your Frankenstein and then sort of, you know, sexually harass her. Uh, she's Frankenstein. Right, yeah. It, bad thing's going to happen. But Garland has an enormous control of mood and visuals, and it's a, a very... Uh, and the uh, performances are really strong. Donald yeah, all Gleason, three of them are amazing. Uh, ...is also great, and uh, it's a nice little chamber piece and a, a great, again, riff on the first science fiction story. And, and it's very hard SF within that space. It's the classic, here is an untenable equation... It's going to get worse until an explosion happens. Deal with it. Right. And it's really good. I said we weren't going to talk a lot about franchises, but next we're going to come to a, an obscure art house film. Yeah. it's. Uh, I think there's a black and white version that maybe has also gotten uh, some. That is uh, entire, almost entirely in a space of sort of a non-narrative a visual feast. Uh, and of course we're talking about Mad Max Fury Road by George <laughs> Miller from 2015, where Tom Hardy steps in right. to play the uh, titular role of Mad Max. He's not the protagonist. He's just sort of a, along for the ride for most of the time. In, in, in some ways he's sort of the, you know, the guy who opens the door to allow the story to be told. Yeah. But then the story is obviously in the hands or hand of uh, Charlize Theron's Imperator Furiosa. A, a woman who does not like the way that the post-Holocaust society has evolved and attempts to bust out and, and deal with it. And, well, do they? Who can say? Right. But there is fury. There is a road. I think we can speak and, to that. And there's one scene of drama dropped right. in to just yes. show you what that, that you know, that, that could be the rest of the movie. It, it shows you what the rest of the movie isn't. And right. what and it is, is a giant, relentless visual feast of an experimental freakout. In the form of a car chase. Yes. <laughs> and it's amazing. And it is... You know, talk, I mean, you talk about technical mastery. This may be, if we were ranking these movies by technical mastery, this may be the second or third best science fiction movie ever no made. No other science fiction movie has a guy with a flame guitar. That's true. Yeah, just right there. That, yeah. That, you know, sorry, Kubrick, good try. <laughs> Maybe uh, put a flame guitar onto the, you know, on the surface of Jupiter and let's see. So let's bookend this with another survival film. That's what I did happen to see. And this is Ridley Scott's most recent actually good science fiction film from 2015 with Matt Damon. And he becomes the Martian. He's an explorer who winds up stranded on Mars. And it's all about him trying to uh, survive. And so it's very much a science-y based procedural TikTok based on a 
novel that is all about the details of solving that problem. Mm -hmm. And Damon's considerable charm manages to hold the screen through you know, long sequences about, yeah, you, you about to, potato growing. Yeah, you have to you have to cast someone that you actually want to watch and listen to because that's all you're pretty much doing. That's again, you yeah. know, it was Clooney and Bullock in right. uh, in Gravity and uh, Matt Damon in this one because yeah. you want to watch them the whole time. And it also follows the novel very faithfully, which is I don't know that that's a you know synchronon, but it's certainly good to see because the novel really depends a lot on its math being right and its bioscience, right. you know, all that being laid out and. Ridley Scott, in addition to sort of, you know, paying attention, taking it seriously, also, of course, shoots it like a Ridley Scott movie. So it's yeah. beautiful to watch. And he doesn't take, the, as he is sometimes wont to do, doesn't decide to take a property and turn it into something that utterly odd. Right, yeah. He just does it straight down the line and it's uh, and he hits the bullseye with it. Well, from the present day, we're going to return to the present day next, not even next week. It'll be a while from now, but we're going to sneak out of the cinema hut, but we got one more segment on the other side of this commercial. In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation Ugh! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlathe tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. We're once more in the most ill-defined of huts, the huts where we're not really sure what's going on. The boundaries are uncertain. The angles are strange. But when we look out the window and we hear the alien big cat screaming on the moor, and we look over at our friends over on the cafe table, the gray alien and the Nordic alien, and they're uh, knocking back a kombucha. But this time, they've got a third pal. They're hanging out with a mongoose. Because, Ken, we're going to talk about the star of... An upcoming film with Simon Pegg. We're going to get to the story before you go see that film. It's time for Jeff the Mongoose. Yeah, or Jeff the Talking Mongoose, as people are fond of saying. And I feel like, why why bury that lead? This is a story that developed on the Isle of Man, a remote hamlet called Dalby, and a remote farm even from that hamlet called Cash and Gap. A fellow named James Irving retires after his job as a salesman to herd sheep and goats on the Isle of Man. Uh, he and his wife, Margaret, and his teen daughter, Viore, or Vore. Turns out it's terrible to be herding sheep and goats on the Isle of Man in the Great Depression, Robin. I don't know <laughs> if you've been tempted by that, but don't. So, what with one thing and another, emotions running high at the house, but in September of 1931, 
They begin to claim their house is haunted by a spirit named Jeff, spelled G-E-F, so that's how we know it's a demon, because it spells GIF wrong. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Jeff claims to be a uh, a lot of things. He says, I'm a spirit, but then he says, I'm not a spirit. If I wasn't a spirit, I wouldn't have hands to crush you. Jeff has a real vibe to him. I mean, it's hard to hate him, even though he's a demon. And eventually, they pin him down, and he says, all right, you got me. I'm a mongoose. I'm a very, very clever mongoose. And I was born in 1852 in Delhi, India, and I came to the Isle of Man via Egypt. I I remember seeing the Sphinx and the pyramids. I could talk all day about them, but I'm busy and I want candy. And uh, (laughs) That's not how you know he's a mongoose. He wants candy. He wants candy. He doesn't have like any sort of kid accomplices or anything. No, that'd be nonsense. So I should say during our very brief touches on actual provable fact in this segment, that mongooses had been imported to the Isle of Man in the 19-teens because apparently the rabbit population had gotten out of hand and people were like, I don't know, what kills rabbits? And someone said probably foxes, and they said, well, we don't want those. What else you got? And they said, how about mongooses? They said, are rabbits snakes now? But anyway, that's what they did. So anyway, Jeff became sort of a presence in the farmstead. The story was that he would watch out for strangers he would sneak out in the wheel well of the car and then spy on the village and bring back gossip. He would um, res- respond to the news, often with borderline profanity. And he sort of didn't much like Margaret, was fond of Voiry, and had a sort of a good-natured bantering relationship with James. That's sort of the, the vibe that they had. It was like, Voiry protects me, Margaret feeds me, James talks to me, was what Jeff would say when... He was asked, why do you stay in this miserable farmhouse? So anyway, this became a big deal. It, it lasted until the Irvings left Cash and Gap. Uh, James died in 1945. And the next owner, Leslie Graham, says that he trapped and killed Jeff the Mongoose. Or he trapped and killed something. And it looked like it might have been Jeff the Mongoose. And, or, a, or a random stoat. Or a random stoat. Who can say? So this... Obviously, you start going around saying you have a talking mongoose. People are going to respond, even in 1931, even on the Isle of Man. So the local paper sent a reporter around, and the local reporter was like, this is ventriloquism. What is wrong with you people? So James would say, hey, I think you're stupid. I don't like your face. Wow, did you hear that? (laughs) I didn't even see the mongoose's lips move. I can literally see that you're doing this. So the reporter just scoffs. He's a mocker, Robin. But... You know, it's the 30s, everyone is bored, so James Irving writes to Harry Price, famous ghostbreaker, to ask him to come and investigate his uh, mongoose. And Harry Price, in a remarkable feat of self-control, says, I'm busy, I'm going to send my friend Captain Dennis. But he's traveling under a pseudonym, James MacDonald, to fool the mongoose, I guess. So anyway, uh, Captain Dennis shows up, Jeff talks in the presence of Captain Dennis, and he leaves a tuft of fur, which Captain Dennis, of course, takes and has tested. And it turns out, Robin, it's weird because you'd think that this would be unusual in a mongoose from 1852 from India. The mongoose has the same fur as the sheepdog Mona that lives on the farm. And, of course, Harry Price, he's a logician, if he's anything. He right. says, well, either this is a rank imposture of the sort that I did not go to investigate in the first place or Jeff was having fun with Captain Dennis and he pulled out the sheepdog's hair and he gave it to him instead of I wouldn't put that past Jeff. I, I think sort of that's thing. exactly it's a, it's a total Jeff. It's movie. classic Jeff, really. 
So anyway, the words keep coming out. So Harry Price shows up in 1935 and he comes to investigate. And Jeff, of course, is like, Harry Price, he's the one that breaks all the ghosts. I'm gone. <laughs> and sure enough, Jeff never shows up during the week that Harry Price spends in the farm. He does leave a paw and tooth prints in plasticine. Harry Price asks, please, will you bite down on this? And Jeff is like, no, it's too hard. And he says, well, I, that's not what I heard about mongooses. I think they have very strong jaws. Are, all right. And this is reported to him by James. He doesn't actually interlocute with Harry Price. And the Museum of Natural History says, well, it's not a mongoose. Is it a dog? I don't know. Some kind of nonsense. <laughs> Stop pestering me, Harry Price. Price clearly believes it's a hoax, but A, his bread and butter is, are there ghosts? And also, he probably doesn't want to get sued by anyone. So he's lots of, whoa, who can say? But finally, uh, in 1937, Nandor Fodor, the American Freudian spook hunter. So right. obviously a man of rigorous scientific principles on both sides of the fence. And this is the protagonist in the upcoming movie. Yeah, this is who movie. will be played right. by. It's called Nandor Fodor and the, and the Talking Mongoose. And so uh, Nandor Fodor goes and he investigates. He also does not hear Jeff. Jeff does not talk to him at all. But he talks to he talks to the Irvings about Jeff. And so he sort of like is gathering all the evidence. And he says, well, I'm sorry, but all the evidence points to it being an actual talking mongoose. <laughs> My hands are tied. It's clearly not a ghost. That would be ridiculous. That's yeah. silly. Yeah. He says it's not a poltergeist. You'd think it's a poltergeist because there's a teenage girl. Lots of similarities. Lots of focus. things are being thrown around. Yeah. Stuff breaks. Candy is being demanded at all times. Swearing. Seems like it would be a, a poltergeist, but yeah. no. Get, Jeff is also helpful, and poltergeists are never helpful. Oh, that proves everything. That proves everything. So, Unassailable if logic. it's not a poltergeist, it has to be a mongoose, says Dandor Forder. It's a binary. So, mongoose, poltergeist. Fodor lives long enough to recognize that this is a dumb explanation. <laughs> and, and does he then admit that un oh, uncharacteristically oh, of anyone? Oh, God, no. He says, well, I forgot a third possibility. The possibility that Jeff is actually an animal. He's actually a mongoose or another mm -hmm. animal, but he's not hyper intelligent and talking. He's possessed by a part of James Irving's split personality. So James Irving, frustrated at being a goat farmer on the Isle of Man instead yeah. of a cool salesman mm -hmm. in England, yeah. is driven mad by this frustration. And so the part of his personality that wants to lash out breaks off and rather than manifest in, you know, alcoholism it manifests in of course as split personalities always do in possessing a mongoose <laughs> so this is a very elegant explanation when you, when you look at, yeah. at when you look at all the facts well when you look at all the facts is obviously voyeur and james messing around and having fun yeah and, but anyway that was nandor funer's final word on the topic and to all intents and purposes i think it's kind of Everyone just enjoys the notion of a talking mongoose so much. No one wants to say this is just stupid ventriloquism and they want to make up something fun, basically. So therefore, the players, I think, in a scenario where they're going mm -hmm. to investigate Jeff, perhaps unsatisfied by Nando Forder's <laughs> explanation. <laughs> Exciting theory. Um, yep. Are going to, I think, uh, I think the way to, to get them on this is to, you know, have them think, okay, well, normally we investigate Cthulhu's and neural taps, but this time this is just dumb and we're yeah. going to have a little holiday and then... A little uh, wacky fun. Right. And then it's, it is something else. Turns and, out to be a brown chanking. <laughs> yeah. Or it could even be that, you know, you could take the dumbest explanation, the Nando mm -hmm. Fodor one, and go, yes, there are people who have split personalities that can possess animals. And 
you know, this was a, a relatively benign instance of that, but someone's just figured out how to do it. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're doing it with, with Rottweilers or right. Or with uh, raccoons, raccoons who can sneak or, and steal stuff yeah, or, you know, Jaguars and whatever it's on. Sort of mm-hmm. So it could be your back way into, you know, you could start off actually, instead of starting off investigating Jeff, cause you kind of know what's happening. You investigate a, you know, lycanthrope and then it, starts to call back to this thing and it's like yeah but this is dumb this can't possibly be a thing but oh no there's a way to it's a it's yeah. a case and yeah. that and that researching the indoor folder gives you the key to how can this guy and the rottweiler be in the same photograph yeah. obviously if he's a werewolf he shouldn't they shouldn't both be there but yeah. everyone's seen him walking the dog but it turns out his lycanthrope personality has been flung into the rottweiler and that's why it's out you know causing trouble Right. So that would then let you do it. Uh, you could do it in the 30s, certainly in Trail of Cthulhu, mm-hmm. but you could also do it later because someone's just using the dreaded Jeff technique. Right. Is Now, is this a is this cognitively dissonant in that it's funny and silly, but also sort of spooky and demonic? Is this an, a possible esoteric plot? Or are these like sad goof esoterrorists that other esoterrorists make fun of that live on the so island. So this would be esoterrorists. It would have to start off as something apparently dumb. That then starts like Jeff the people. Talking Monkey. Right. So somebody brings back Jeff on TikTok. Right. Right. That they found this. Jeff t- Talk. T- Jeff it's talk. very big. Yeah. And so somebody said, well, I have my own talking mongoose and he's here on camera. And sure enough, there he is mm-hmm. for a second. Yep. And then people are, what, what is that? And they comment on that. And then somebody else has got their different talking animals that they're projecting into. And then that then they start to go haywire, I think would be the esoteric version. The, the people, people watch the TikTok too much and then they're projecting themselves and into the splits of their personality yeah. filters the outer dark. Yeah, so you have a contagion effect. Right, yeah. That's good fun. And, you know, what's what's better than one talking mongoose in a remote farm? A bunch of talking mongooses as close as your cell phone. Right. And I guess in uh, the Yellow King, it's already canonical that there are animals walking around the This Is Normal Now setting uh, that have little masks on, and are, mm-hmm. there's already the the bandit, which is the raccoon that goes around with a pallid mask on, and it has sort of a folkloric thing where if you capture one and don't kill it, it will answer any one question for you, and that's just a sign of reality breaking down because that's kind of nuts. So it might reality breakdown might bring all sorts. It's already established that you know lots of other folkloric things become real once. Caracosin energy starts to swirl around, so it could make an actual Jeff, and then yeah. Jeff could again show up on TikTok or what have you, and then you know things just you know get worse from there. Or instead of you know a, a, a Mister Wild, uh, you know, prancing around with no ears, you've got a some kind of talking animal that is disguised as Mister Wild, and that's right. why he's wearing big plastic ears. Right. Or in, you know, instead of a cat attacking humans, you know, right? It's a mongoose. mongoose. Well, once we're warning you of the danger of mongoose attacks. It's time for us to uh, close out this episode. We're going to go off and have all sorts of adventures with Gen Con. And next, when you hear from us, we won't be talking about uh, science fiction movies. We'll just be talking about uh, what happened at Gen Con, if we remember any of it. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsor. Atlas Games. Telegram Press. Asphagal. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep us talking like a couple of mongeese by joining such alert backers as... Thomas Edward. Dare Barefoot. James Tatum. Rich Spainauer. And Peter Adkison. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Robin. Present the gray alien point of view with our latest design. Nope, still not us. On 
axe. He's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>